folks. Welcome to Two Feet Apart with me, your host, Peachy Patrick. Two Feet Apart is a space for individuals to learn that language matters, that words mean things, that to embrace diversity means to practice inclusivity within the LGBTQ plus Indigenous, people of color, and Black communities. To embrace diversity means to provide accessible practices for those who possess visible and invisible disabilities. It's a space to place egos in the crevices of our beings in hopes of broadening mental horizons to foster growth. It's a space to fuel mindfulness. It's a space to emulate vulnerability in the sharing of our stories because our stories are our greatest strengths and our strongest powers, our superpowers. With that in mind, happy listening. In this episode, we speak with the incredible and multifaceted Salam Debs. I really hope that you enjoy this episode and listen to it in full because there are so many different talking points that we are able to touch on and so much that even I personally was able to learn and find new digestible ways to relay some of my opinions to other people. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Petra. Um, I'm super excited to chat with you. And I think that there's so many ways that this conversation could go. So I'm really curious to see kind of which direction we'll lean. But why don't you tell us your story? Sure. Yeah, well, my name is Salam Debs and uh, my pronouns are she, her. I am a Black, Ethiopian, queer, cis, able-bodied mother of a 16-year-old boy. Um, I am an anti-racism educator owner of a yoga studio, yoga meditation. I teach that as well um, as, you know, Reiki practitioner and, and all kinds of things. But, you know, I think what's led me to all the work that I do today is definitely rooted in my experience of my, you know, parents coming to so-called Canada in the 1980s from Ethiopia to Sudan, from Sudan to Amman, Jordan, from Amman, Jordan to so-called Canada, growing up in disinvested communities, um, growing up with rich communities in, in my culture and experiencing a lot of trauma, you know, surviving, being a survivor of abuse, uh, being molested at the age of nine, being raped, raped at the age of 16, and then um, being a single mother at the age of 21. And so all of these experiences along with of course, living in an anti-Black world and really wanting and striving for healing, striving for, uh, you know, breaking generational cycles of trauma uh, led me to yoga and meditation and other wellness practices and spiritual practices. And so, um, you know, today, I think my, my story kind of is how can we begin to advocate and dismantle systems of oppression. Because I think for me growing up, I always blamed myself. I internalized mm -hmm. so much of the experiences that I had and thought it was just me in this kind of isolated experience until you realize that it's systemic and that my experience is not unique. And, um, you know, which has led me to, you know, the education and, and the dedication and commitment to, to healing modalities. Wow. Um, you have a very powerful story and I'm curious to know, like, um, it becomes obvious through kind of your social media and speaking to you that these are things that are your big passions and focuses right now. Um, I'm curious to know what those were when you were younger growing up, um, before you kind of were able to switch into this mindset. 
Mm-hmm. Well, when I was younger, I was always a, uh, I was a seeker. I was always like seeking the truth of things, you know, mm-hmm. and I was, but I was, my parents used to always say like, wow, like you talk so much, you ask so many questions that you're constantly inquisitive and asking those, those questions. And, and so, um, you know, growing up, it was interesting. I was, I loved going to church and now I, you know, call myself spiritual. I'm not really attached to any specific um, religion. However, growing up, Um, and going to a Pentecostal church, that was something that was like my desire. And when I used to get in trouble, my mom used to say like, you're not going to church. She would prevent me from going because it was something that was important to me. But what I realized is what, what, why I loved it so much is because I was a seeker. I was seeking, I was looking for answers. I was thinking beyond my years, even at the age of, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10. And I wanted to understand what the meaning of life was. And I was trying to, to, to know those things. So that was one thing. One thing was the, the seeking aspect, which led, which is basically, you know, the, the stream of consciousness that, that is in everything that I do today. And I think the other aspect is that I was very passionate, um, an artist, a creative. I was singing, I was writing, I was a poet. And so I was already kind of on that spectrum of like thinking very outside of the box mm-hmm. and I never really fit in even culturally in the Ethiopian culture. I was always like different. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that all plays into to who I am today and, and, and part of the way that I do the work, my work today. I love that you were able to kind of use one path to guide into another and you didn't feel like you had to kind of, you know, a lot of people grow up and they're like, oh, I can't, I can't dance anymore because that's what I did as a kid and things like that. And it's like, that's how you keep your joy through your whole life. You continue those things that made you happy as a kid because you have to honor that. Absolutely. And singing is still part of my life. Creative, like the work that I do as an activist or as an anti-racism educator, or even teaching yoga and meditation, it's very creative for me. It's, mm-hmm. it, it is rooted in that art and it's that rooted in that creative, you know, magic that when I write the same way I used to write poetry and I still write poetry, it comes from a deeper place. It's mm-hmm. a very spiritual experience. So when people are reading the things that I write, you know, on Instagram, on social media, or the workshops that I do, it's really coming from this deep centered place. It's not really an intellectual experience. It's a very, it's a very centered experience. So yes, it's, it's part of everything that I do today. No, I'm not an artist. I always thought I'd be a, I would Mm -hmm. be a creative out there singing and performing, but in many ways, I'm still doing exactly what I was meant to do. Amen. Um, So in terms of kind of the art that you create and like for example, poetry, do you have a ritual um, that you use to integrate that spirituality and mindfulness into that? Mm. I wouldn't say that I have a ritual. I would say that I feel often that I'm at the mercy of my art. Like I feel like it speaks through me. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, if I'm, if I'm really caring for myself and I'm doing, you know, self-love, self-care, community care things. Um, I feel like I can root into it a little bit more and I can connect to it more. But I think, you know, um, I'm touched by a lot of things. So when I see things or I feel things or I'm in relationship with people or I'm in relationship with community, I feel that, I feel that energy. And 
um, I'm usually inspired by things that happen or situations that happen or experiences that come up within me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say a lot of it is very spontaneous. Um, I can't say that I like sit down and I'm like, okay, Saturday, I'm going to write, yeah. I'm going to do this thing. I know a lot of people do, and that's really mm-hmm. dope. But for me, it's more spontaneous. That resonates with me as well, because, um, I too was really into poetry and artwork and painting and things like that. And I found that I would try to sit down and be kind of like strict with it. And then I was like, this does not, I just sit here and stare at the paper or the canvas. And sometimes I can get something out, but it's never as good as when I'm just like, oh, I have this idea and it's going to, it's going to come to life. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have um, an aspect of that that you're most proud of? Yeah, I think that what my poetry has allowed me to do, I think poetry did for me before public, I used to be very scared of public speaking. I was like, I can't public speak. I can Mm -hmm. sing, I can write, but don't ask me to communicate what I'm actually thinking in conversation or, you know, in that way. Um, But I think what writing and poetry and art has done for me is it allowed me to, to examine you know, parts of myself that maybe have been shadows in, in, in my history and then bring it to the light in a way that I think inspires other people, that they see their, a mirror of themselves. Oh, wow. She was able to say that so honestly and so authentically or, you know, calling, naming or speaking truth to power, you know, mm-hmm. things that I think I've been able to say writing that I wasn't quite yet ready to say vocally and you know with words in that way but um yeah I think it's helped to empower me and I think it's helped to empower many people that I'm in relationship with amazing do your parent are your parents um and even growing up were they supporters of kind of honoring this side um because I know for a lot of parents you know they're like okay cool hobby but let's focus on kind of further education in like the traditional systems and you know those types of jobs and careers um so I'm just curious to know like what your relationship with them was like and how they kind of viewed this evolution for you Mm -hmm. yeah no I think most immigrant like you know Ethiopian uh, parents of the African diaspora (laughs) the Korean diaspora are like no you need to become a lawyer my dad always thought I'd be a lawyer or wanted Mm -hmm. for me what he wished for me he was an academic and I think because they worked so hard and you know came to so-called Canada they're like no like what are you going to do out here singing and writing and they they wanted me to have a career and saw that career as being a doctor a lawyer Mm -hmm. you know a teacher something like that I think when things started to shift and change and they started to admire what I did was um, hearing actually hearing me perform and my father hearing me for the first time Um, I remember my graduation in high school and he was, I sang at the graduation and he was like tearing up and really proud and really amazed. And um, I actually went on before I had my son to pursue music as a career. I thought I was going to do that. Um, But my dad was very artistic. He actually, you know, revealed that as I was growing up that he was, um, he played instruments, Ethiopian instruments, he sang. Um, So I think they've accepted over the years that I'm always going to kind of do my own thing. And interesting enough, though, I feel like the art and the, the everything that I'm, I'm doing, even though I'm an entrepreneur and I, I don't really maybe have the traditional structures and everything that I do, um, has led me to 
there is still a lot of structure. People may not see that and may not believe that as an entrepreneur, but um, I find that I've created my own little world of how I do the work that I do in the world and built my own kind of micro and macrocosm. Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating because um, even in terms of like dance, for example, I find that people um, with backgrounds in dance are really good with discipline and kind of taking that initiative on their own. So even in terms of maybe not going the traditional route with educations or careers, like all of those skills are so transferable into whatever you decide to do, right? A hundred percent. Like I think, you know, and I'm not patting myself on the back for this because I'm trying to learn how to like do less work, (laughs) but I definitely have a high level of discipline when it comes to you know, building businesses and, you know, staying on top of things on a daily basis and kind of not having to, you know, be, you're not, there isn't anyone to tell you what to do on a daily basis. You're kind Mm -hmm. of responsible for creating what you're creating. So yeah, I I definitely, you know, work ethic is not a problem for me (laughs) because watching your parents, you know, have to struggle and especially my single mother. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think now my work is more in the opposite direction. It's like, I know I can work my ass to death. So we know that you know how to burn out. Mm-hmm. Now, how, how do you start to create, I don't really like the term balance, but how do you start to create more, um, you know, pauses and rest and how do you prioritize mm-hmm. your mental, emotional well-being, and so forth? Mm-hmm. The culture of relaxation that doesn't have to be a luxury, right? That part. And we're taught that I think as black women, right? Mm-hmm. That it is a luxury. And Mm -hmm. you can only do in the world what you see and what has been presented to you. And I think the images that we've seen of the strong black women, you know, us as entrepreneurs, like that whole culture of babe boss nonsense Mm -hmm. and, you know, working your working hard, like meritocracy, pull up your bootstraps, just like anybody can create, you know, even though I did overcome a lot and I am where I am today, I would never push that rhetoric on anyone because I know how many sacrifices. Yes. And I know that many of it was at a cost too. And I'm, I'm healing those parts of myself. Mm-hmm. Similarly, like with my son, I always say, I don't want him to be able to be like, oh, my mom's such a strong black woman. I would much rather him say, my mom's such a passionate black woman. She's yeah. such a kind, she's such a happy, she's such a loving, like, you know, there's so many terms better that um despite also having traumas and also experiencing kind of those things that you do have to persevere and they are hard to work through um I don't want that to be what he recognizes me on 100 percent, and I think I think if we if we can't be multifaceted you know women and femmes in the world I think we we perpetuate that, that cycle of generational trauma, right? And we place that burden on our children to, to assume that they also have to do the same thing. And so breaking that cycle has been a big part. And thankfully, yoga and meditation is a big part of my life, but it's also a business. I run a mm-hmm. studio. So I've had to learn how to integrate that into my own life and, you know, take time off and actually, you know, find time for joy and for fun and you know, for all of those things that we, that are our birthright. Absolutely. How do you think that, um, you know, these perspectives shape the way that you are raising your son? Mm. 
you mean the perspectives of like dismantling ideas around strong black women mm-hmm. yes yeah well you know i think it's connected also to dismantling patriarchy misogyny mm-hmm. right because that's where they're really rooted in right it's rooted yes. in this white supremacy capitalism um you know colonialism cis hetero patriarchy stuff right and so mm-hmm. when I think about why we even have those perspectives about black women it's like rooted in this history of our worth being related to our labor because mm-hmm. our labor was extracted and, and and stolen and taken from us and so for me I'm always thinking about all the isms and how these isms impact who we are right we, we start to think that they are our identity identity mm-hmm. we think it's our personality but it's not a personality it's a socialization it's a conditioning and so when I look at my son I'm like how can I help also guide him to dismantle patriarchy misogyny within him how he can become an intersectional feminist how he can move in the world where he doesn't perpetuate that so if he's in a position of decision making he's not going to perpetuate that in his environments right and so um you know helping him become more emotionally intelligent helping him connect to all parts of who he is so that he can fully express himself and not play into that you know toxic masculinity and all that so yeah, it's a big part. Our our like dinner table table conversations and morning conversations are like, so let's unpack patriarchy. Like this is our day. Let's unpack white supremacy today. Like so, when your teacher said this thing, what do you think they meant? You know, when mm-hmm. this happened, you know. So yeah, he can't run from those conversations. They're every day, all day. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that'll be. Cash's future because um as a single black mom I'm like these are things that aren't just important to me I feel like they're so important just to like I don't even know like on such a large level um that it needs to be not just like oh you know I, I decide I'm an ally that's it like put in the work do have the conversations and things like that and I don't want him to grow up and be in the position where he's like questioning toxic masculinity or hearing these terms new um because you see especially in like moms groups and things like that there's a lot of people that are like oh my children are too young to be learning this or it's not relevant to them and things like that and I'm like um I love those posts where it's like if my child is uh old enough to experience racism your child is old enough to learn about black history and how not to be racist Yeah. And I would say like, it's not even just black. It's like learn about white history because Mm -hmm. that's really not our history. The subjugation of black people um, is the history of white, of of white history. And, and we have to pair that with the education of like, how do they learn how to love themselves as black youth? Right. Mm -hmm. How do they learn how to, how do they learn how to um, filter all of the information that they will get on a daily basis, telling them that they are unworthy, telling them that mm-hmm. they are inferior, telling them that their hair is not good enough, that their melanin is, is inferior, that they need to code switch, right? Like all of that on a daily basis, like not only do I have to teach my son about white supremacy so that he understands not to internalize the messaging, but then I have to make sure I also teach him how to love himself and, and have pride in who he is and his culture and you know his ancestry and so forth Mm -hmm. yeah that's 
it's a heavy it's a heavy burden almost but it's not even really a burden anymore it's become like a privilege you know like I have the honor of not only being your safe space but being your educator and being able to guide you through this and you know I find that even like as I think of these things for I mean my son's only like barely a year old um but I find that as I think of these things for how am I going to address this with him in the future and like get all these books and resources and things like that like I'm learning more preparing to educate him Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely and you know, back to what you were saying about the white parent, like parents, obviously, typically, there's a white parents that are saying like, why I don't want to teach my children about these negative things, I want Mm -hmm. them to be children and be innocent. It's like, yeah, like the privileged, it's really beyond privilege. It's like, it's an advantage in the world to be able to move in the world and not have to address the harms, right? In a similar Mm -hmm. way to being an ableist society, not having to take the time to recognize how you're perpetuating ableism and so forth. Um, And so, but the only thing is that, you know, race is at the intersection of everything, every Mm -hmm. identity. And so um, I always tell, you know, white parents like, well, you know, white supremacy steals the humanity of us uh, and in particular white folks who are not educating themselves and their children so really you're doing a disservice to your child by not helping them and guiding them to uncover how they may be perpetuating harm and violence and so you're you're really just colluding with white supremacy and then passing on that intergenerational violence right Mm -hmm. and so just like we have to heal our families as black communities from the Uh, history of intergenerational trauma and constantly still happening it's still happening to youth in schools today and in in communities today white folks need to do the work of healing and 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 looking at the intergenerational violence that has been passed down generation from generation Mm -hmm. and it's not as simple as you know changing a diagram in a textbook or kind of the curriculum that's there it's conversations that parents inevitably have to be comfortable having with their children or guardians having with their children um so i think that like it all start like they always say like oh it starts with you but it truly does um because if you can't pass on those conversations and continue evolving um then it ends with you you know Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry. (laughs) Um, How do you kind of find ways and resources to help your son feel um, that he is worthy as a black man and um, that he can still be in touch with his culture when um, we're in a country that, although is very multicultural, is still um, primarily white? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I always say in, you know, so-called Canada perpetuates, you know, racism with a smile. It mm-hmm. perpetuates an idea of multiculturalism, but it's really just assimilation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it still holds whiteness as a standard, supreme standard to which everything is measured by. Yes. And, you know, that happens on a daily, daily basis. And these are not just like microaggressions. These are like macro aggressions, which are, you know, racist violence. So to help my, my, you know, son and and boy who when he moves in the world they don't see him as a youth they see Mm -hmm. him as an adult they see him as a grown-up they want to treat him as a grown-up um really helping him connect to like being a kid like being young being in a teenager 
you know, doing things that he should be focusing on, which is like, he's, he has a love for editing and for film and spends a lot of time in that world of creating things. And he's, he's mm -hmm. a creative in his own right. Um, but I think it's also constantly reinforcing images and videos and music and conversations and culture and, you know, eating Ethiopian food and being around our Ethiopian family members, going to events in our community that are like, um, you know, Afrocentric, um, you know, really helping and encouraging him to take in art and media and music that is like, you know, uh, not just white, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And really connecting to hip hop and R&B and jazz and soul and really seeing those images as much as possible and reinforcing that for him. And then having mentors and people around him that pour that love into him as well and people pouring that love into him. So yeah, I would say it's hard, it, it, it's work, it's a lot. And, and it's, it's also a gift because I think, I always try to tell him like, you have a superpower. I know the world tells you that your blackness is inferior but I'm telling you, you have a superpower because your lens to the world, the way you see the world, the way you examine the world, the way that, yes, you've had to be resilient in many ways, but you've also learned to build so much empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. um, that's a superpower. Your culture, your ancestors who stand like the shoulders that you're standing on. Mm -hmm. And so um helping him see that and you know when he was four years old um Patra he you know came to me and said mommy I wish you didn't call me Jaleel I wish you called me Zach mommy I wish um my skin was white and and not you mm. know brown mommy I wish my hair was straight and not you know curly yeah. afro and I in that moment I thought I was doing all the things you know, and so mm -hmm. I had to step it up, but I also had to realize that it wasn't just enough for me to pour love into him. I also had to teach him how to examine and understand whiteness so that he didn't internalize that and understand how it operates. So both, both are constantly happening. Now, my boy has a nice fro. He has mm. a nice, you know, the, remember those, um, the high, high top. Tops? Yeah. <laughs> yes. He has the high top and, you know, he really, I think is, like authentically who he is mm -hmm. um and like in his you know this generation is very different <laughs> than our generation and I, yeah it's beautiful to see it really is I remember um you know in I think it was high school um my neighbor who was biracial her son's uh father was white and I would babysit him every so often and take care of him and he had like curly hair um but it was of like a like a much um finer texture and so I would do his hair for him anytime I was watching him and I would always joke and say like the bigger the better man and then I would be picking out my hair and things like that and then I remember one day I had made him mad and he's like your hair's not even big today and I was like oh okay <laughs> Uh, it's my favorite yeah um so I think it's really beautiful that now kind of these kids can come into that um in a much lighter way without having to kind of be like grasping for resources and things like that um I did want to ask what um is your experience with watching your son do any code switching because I know for kind of my generation your generation and all the previous that's something that is just automatic like I didn't even realize that was a thing until someone said it and I was like 
Oh my goodness. Yes. I just thought I was really, really complex, but no, that's, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Um, and so I'm curious to know if you notice that in kind of the newer generations that are coming forward. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the less I code switch to, I agree with you, the, the more I'm able to see how much I did it in so many mm-hmm. different spaces. And so because this has been an ongoing conversation and, you know, and, and he's watched me be really honest about a lot of things, I think, uh, you know, so when he's been through situations that have been racist situations and I've seen where he, he doesn't quite have the ability to be able to say in that moment, hey, that thing is like harmful or so harm could happen, but he might play it off, right? Mm-hmm. And not address it and then come home and tell me about it. I think a lot of our youth are still dealing with those, that type of behavior. Like the other day he went to his orthodontist and um, and he walked there from school and he told me later that the orthodontist like wanted to touch his hair and they, well, they were touching his hair, they petted his hair. Mm. And um, he didn't say anything in that moment, right? He kind of played it off and played nice and, you know, left. And mm-hmm. I think this is generational and I don't, I don't think this is going to go away. I think it's going to take time because this is deeply ingrained in our DNA, like in our genetics and it's a passed down survival mechanism. So I try not to be too hard on him or even myself or any of us in our communities, because mm-hmm. I think it's something that's ingrained in us for survival and you're in a situation and something happens, the ability to name it and call it out, you know, does come, come with consequences or even the ability to be fully yourself. You could lose Mm -hmm. a job. You may not get promoted. You could, you know, experience. So I understand why it's such a deeply ingrained part of who we are in the world. And the more we practice it, right. And systems have to change, right? It's not enough because if Jaleel says that in his spaces and he calls out harm or calls out a teacher and then he gets a C grade or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's deeply connected to our sense of safety and our sense of economic and social, you know, social safety. So um, I think talking about it with him, this trauma, moving through those conversations, having, helping him build up that confidence and helping him see um, that who he is, is enough. Um, I think it's ongoing work. I don't think we're there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're even close to being there yet, but, um, you know, I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to plant the seeds in anti-racism work that trees are going to be, you know, that are going to grow. Um, but we're not going to experience maybe the shade of those trees. You know what I'm saying? Mm, like that's those a beautiful tre- way to, yeah. Yeah. So it, 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 we're, we're planting those seeds. Things are transforming, but, you know, we, we will see that. We may not see that come into fruition, but mm-hmm. it will come. Mm-hmm. I believe that. That's such a beautiful way to put it. I'm definitely going to use that going forward. <laughs> uh, I, 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 sh- I heard someone else share it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere out there. Yeah. Uh, and so kind of in terms of that, because, uh, you know, for example, his orthodontist touching his hair, um, I've had so many experiences like this. Um, and even my son, who is still an infant, um, experiences this because we go out and people are like, oh, look, he has like a baby afro. Um, mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, look at his hair and they touch it. And um, it comes down to like that intent versus impact, which I find myself talking a lot about. Um 
but you know, sort of their intent might be, oh, I'm just going to touch his hair. And they might not know that that's racist. And then the thing that um, I find myself having trouble navigating is that people then are like, oh, I'm not like, I don't mean to be racist or like, I'm not, or, you know, I don't see color and things like that. And what um, is your kind of response to those conversations? Yeah, I think people need to grow up in their understanding of what mm-hmm. racism is, right? Folks think that racism is like, they imagine the KKK, they imagine overt racism, they mm-hmm. imagine like someone saying the N-word or hating Black people, right? That's what they imagine when they think about racism. Yeah. But the reality is, you know, Resna Menekum, who's the author of My Grandmother's Hands, he talks about the idea of like white folks need to grow up in building their capacity and awareness around racism because, You know, racism is not just about how, whether you like me or not. It's about the ways in which, because racism is really code for white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, white supremacy is really the ways in which white folks get to be the human standard in the world, the center, the universal human. Mm -hmm. And they don't actually have to think about the ways in which who they are and their identity impact the spaces that they are in. So that in of itself is violence, whether you know it or not. And like you said, the impact is what we focus on because the ability for white folks to not have to think about that, right? Mm -hmm. Like for us, we are not going up to white people's children and touching their hair. No. We will not do that (laughs) because- we know we have had to navigate the world and we've had to analyze and build self-awareness because we know how we could be perceived, what people might think, what could happen in this moment, Mm -hmm. right? So white folks don't have that, they don't have to have that, that, that overthinking, that hypervigilance. And that in of itself is racism, is white supremacy. It's the ability to not have to even think about Mm. your actions and how you move in the world right and so I think for when white folks can understand that what we're asking you to do is build that awareness which Mm. means you need to take time to examine yourself right we don't need you to examine us we don't need you to study us there's too many books and pathology and research and history about blackness and indigenous people and Mm -hmm. so forth and racialized people what we want to know what we want white folks to do is learn about what it means to be white in the world and how your whiteness impacts people because then you're going to think about ah I read that book about the harm of touching black people's hair because that's rooted in a history of ownership over black bodies. It's it's rooted in colonialism and it's rooted in that your nervous system seeing a black body and seeing that they are less human. And whether you're not thinking that consciously, but our nervous systems, that's how we react in the world to our nervous systems, right? Just like Mm -hmm. we don't sit, I don't, we don't sit back and walk into spaces with white folks and always know that we're hypervigilant, but our nervous systems will respond before we even know that, right? Mm -hmm. And so white folks do the same thing. Even their sense of comfortability is part of that superiority mindset that doesn't um, ask them to examine themselves. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where to start with that answer Um, because like, you know how, when you go to like poetry readings and it's really good and they like all snap, like that's all my head is doing the entire time you were saying that because um, not only is that such a digestible way to 
address it and to kind of help people recognize it, I think it's a really good way to kind of begin to start those conversations and make people more comfortable with, you know, it's okay if you said something that was racist, but now that you know better, it's no longer okay. Um, and so it's that recognizing it in yourself. Um, and like you said, you just kind of have to look and be like, okay, you know, what is this rooted in? What's the, what's the source of where this feeling or sentiment is coming from? Um, and in terms of that, I find that one thing that I'm always faced with when I speak of these topics is people are like, well, that's racist to white people. Um, and, you know, why do you have to say white people like that? And things like that. Um, what's your, <laughs> I can see from your face, what is your take on that? Because I'm sure that you encounter it much more than I do. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've been called racist by white people. I mean, mm -hmm. thousands of times, but the thing is, you know, there's no such thing as reverse racism. Black, indigenous, and racialized people cannot be racist towards white people because the idea or concept or construct of racism or um, is the privilege, power, domination, right, oppression, um, and, and all of that wrapped into each other for hundreds of years that was constructed and developed and mastered over hundreds of years is what created white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So we may have the ability, we can be prejudiced. We can say, I don't like you white person, but saying, I don't like you white person does not lead to systemic impacts. We cannot systemically impact, uh, you know, white people collectively and the way that they are and how they have access in the world. No matter where you are, no matter what part of the world you go to, a white person experiences advantage period mm -hmm. doesn't matter if you go to the continent of africa doesn't matter if you go to the caribbean doesn't matter if you go to the continent of asia and so forth white folks have privilege and advantage and are seen as a supreme standard to which everything is is measured by so we need to recognize that racism is not about the individual experience yes we individually experience harm and violence but i'm not i'm, I'm less worried about uh, you know, a white person not liking me. I'm I'm more concerned around the systemic impacts to my life outcomes, which mm -hmm. is access to housing, access to education. You know, um, whether you are likely to be in the school to prison pipeline and be incarcerated. What happens if you're in front of a judge? What happens if you make a mistake in life? You know, all of the ways. You know, who gets economic freedom? Who has intergenerational wealth? all of these ways that racism operates and again racism is code for white supremacy that we need to recognize that you know we can't be racist towards white people we can't maybe we don't like you and sometimes we rightfully have the reasons not to because of the systemic impacts um you know towards you know black indigenous and racialized people across the globe every land across the globe um, has been colonized, subjugated, extracted, stolen from. The opposite has not happened. Black, indigenous, and racialized people have not done that to any mm -hmm. European, uh, you know, country or ancestral, uh, you know, collective. So mm -hmm. we need to understand that we're talking about, you know, over 500 years of colonialism, extraction, subjugation, stealing, annihilation, raping, destroying, uh, devastation of communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and it's not just um it's not just something that you know is necessarily like a guilt that they have to carry but it's a power they have to recognize um because that's something like my younger brother um is white and he often says especially when he was younger that you know he was ashamed to be white because he would hear me um, speaking on these topics and educating myself and would be made aware of these things and just be absolutely horrified that that is part of where he comes from. But I think it's important to recognize that like you didn't have a choice to be born white. Similarly, I did not have a choice to be born black. However, as long as you recognize the power that that holds for you and you can honor that, um, then it kind of helps, not even necessarily that it it like helps us, but it kind of encourages, empowers. It doesn't even level the playing field. We are living in a system that was not designed for us. Um, but if that can be recognized and honored, then it's something that makes those interactions so much more respectful. Yeah, and white folks need to take accountability. I think accountability <clears throat> is really key. We need to understand mm -hmm. that there's been no accountability for the history of colonialism, there has not been reparations, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to Black and Indigenous and you know racialized people across the globe. Mm -hmm. And do you think that's something that that accountability um, is on a larger scale, or do you think that's more individualized? I think we need to see it on. I think on an individual level, on an interpersonal level, on a systemic level, right, and mm -hmm. on course, like a, a broader macro macro level. And I think we're already seeing that with, you know, countries like Jamaica, who are asking for reparations, um, demanding reparations. Um, now that they've distanced themselves from, you know, the queen, we are seeing that with indigenous peoples across the globe who are demanding reparations. But I think on an individual level, what accountability looks like is it says, I am not asking, I don't, I don't need you to, to soothe my, my, I don't need you to soothe me. Mm -hmm. Right. The thing with black, what happens to black indigenous racialized people, we're always asked to soothe white bodies, to comfort yes. white bodies, to make them feel less guilt. Uh, guilt and shame is a natural response. When I harm people, or if I knew that my people created generational harm, that would be a natural response. Mm -hmm. I think as a cisgender, uh, you know, woman, I feel responsibility in really dismantling that thinking and advocating for trans folks. So mm -hmm. to me, it's a call to your humanity, right? Mm -hmm. Like why, when people are telling you, hey, your people and your ancestors have harmed me, instead of feeling uh, shame and guilt and then pushing away and being defensive, defensive, maybe one can say, ah, this is, the, this is an opportunity for me to do better and to contribute to do better. And that's a call to your humanity as opposed to feeling guilt and, and shame and living in that space. Mm -hmm. Help plant those trees. That part, exactly. Yes. Um, so I'm curious in terms of um, this work that you are very passionate about, you are so educated on, um, how did you come into it? Because I noticed that there was an influx of kind of anti-racism becoming almost a trend with um, a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests and things like that that happened in 2020. I was like, what year is it? Um, yeah, 2020. And so I'm wondering what your experience with that is. Like, is that something that um, you've noticed that space become 
very crowd and all of a sudden you know companies want uh dni <laughs> the facial expression says it all um want those educators and you know want to call themselves inclusive and things like that mm -hmm. yeah you know it's so interesting i i think anti-racism or equity work or racial justice work has always been a part of my life i think i've always um, felt like I was the only one, especially when I moved to Kitchener-Waterloo. My mom moved us here to move us out of disinvested communities and to have a better life in KW and coming to this community and being the only Black you know, person in every space. I think it forces you to have to speak up. And, and, and um, that was like my life. And I was doing talks and doing workshops and doing all those things before 2020, you know, whenever before. Mm -hmm. Before the awakening yes. <laughs> of the world. Um, but nobody cared. And mm -hmm. you know what? Interesting. Um, people saw me as radical and saw me as like, oh, there she goes. Talk. It was just like birds chirping. So the way people mm -hmm. show that they didn't care is that nobody responded. And I remember I ran an anti-racism um, course in uh, January of 2020. So right before COVID happened. And I had 20 people that signed up, um, white women. And we did this work and talked about white supremacy and all of that. And I thought, this is great things are changing, 20 people are here. And then of course, you know, the uprising um, and the revisibilization re 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 of Black Lives Matter happened. And um, of course, now there is this kind of social currency around it. Organizations mm -hmm. are like, oh yeah, mark me, stamp me with the idea that I am inclusive. And, and so I tried to dismantle all of that thinking Mm -hmm. I'm not going to come into people's spaces and, you know, be their token black person. That's going to help them feel a sense of like, oh, we did it. Check. Mm -hmm. It's like I go in and I'm, 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 I have them have really difficult conversations and really difficult observations for themselves around the ways in which they're tokenizing, perpetuating harm and, and so forth. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely a thing, DEI is something that I feel, I, I don't look down upon. I understand why the work is needed, but I do think it's been co-opted mm -hmm. and stolen and, and used for, um, you know, making folks look good rather than doing better. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's the responsibility of those groups of people to educate on it? Uh, you mean those who are teaching anti-racism and so, for example, do you think as a black woman that it is your responsibility to teach white people this? No, your responsibility is to care for yourself, grow your family, mm -hmm. <laughs> take care of your. No, I do not think it is our responsibility as black, indigenous, or racialized people to educate on um, on racism and equity and diversity. Although I do believe that it is, um, you know, white folks' responsibility to hire. Um, those who have chosen this work and are educated and experts in this work and have the wisdom traditions to bring to it and the lived experience to bring that education. So pay Black, Indigenous, and racialized women, femmes, trans, non-binary folks for their labor, period. Um, and then do not go and ask Black, Indigenous, and racialized people to educate you because that is not our job to do so. Um, we're not perpetuating free labor. And I think for Black, Indigenous, racialized folks, for us, I think what our work is, you know, 
um, healing. Our work is, you know, doing the work to heal from inter intergenerational trauma, to allow ourselves to experience joy, to break generational cycles. I don't think it's our work to do that. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like what um, Janelle Monet says, mm -hmm. uh, the singer, she says, you know, you effed up the kitchen. Now you need to do the dishes. And this is you white folks, y'all effed up the kitchen. Y'all need to do the dishes and they need to do the, to do that work. Mm -hmm. Do you find that um, with this education and kind of your awareness of um, the importance of the inclusivity and in the education, does that shape the way that you run your business? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Everything that I do has an anti-oppression, anti-racist lens. I mean, I can't mm -hmm. tell you how many things, if it's not an alignment, if it's gonna perpetuate harm, if it perpetuates tokenism, if the person is not coming to this work with a true desire to want to um, to have, like if they, if they ask me to come in and they say, Salam, we want you to come in, but we want you to tone it down a little bit. You want you to not, cause people know when they come to me, they mm -hmm. know what I'm gonna share. Then we're not doing this work together. Um, it's not going to happen. I'm not gonna tone it down. Um, and you know, it impacts the way I run my studio, my yoga studio. All my teachers have to have an anti-oppression, anti-racist lens. They have to do the anti-racism course that I created. They have to read a book um, by Susanna Barkataki about decolonizing yoga. They have to um, do the work. Uh, to support in decolonizing yoga and meditation spaces. And if that's not an alignment, then we don't work together. And, um, you know, I think we try to hold that sense of integrity and hold that sense of um, awareness in everything we do. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I have so much respect for the way that you are able to kind of advocate and enforce um, all of those boundaries. Do you have words of advice for um, any other person that is struggling in terms of specifically this topic, you know, the black indigenous racialized people, what would be kind of your sense of guidance for them to setting and honoring those boundaries for themselves? Yes. Yes. Well, first I want to just acknowledge that I understand why we don't often set those boundaries. Like I shared earlier that we've been conditioned and socialized, right. To mm -hmm. white bodies. We've been conditioned out of survival to, um, you know, to betray ourselves, to, to be submissive at times, to mm -hmm. turn a blind eye. We we've been condi conditioned to do that. And rightfully so it's a survival you know, technique in, in many ways and tool. But I think that as things are starting to change and transform and systems are starting to change, you know, when we start to create boundaries, um, we begin to take a lot of our power back. We begin to feel well, more well in our skin. Um, and it's actually a gift into the spaces that we are moving into. When we create boundaries in general, what we do is we're saying, I'm teaching you how to treat me. Mm -hmm. And that's not easy, especially if we've never really done that. But I think um, it, is, it is the future. It's the way that we're moving forward, that when we start to, to tell people how to treat us, we begin to feel more safer. We can be more of ourselves. We can wear our braids the way that we want to. We can communicate the way we want to. Because who we are is, like I said, a superpower the gifts that we have to bring to the table, they will not 
like we don't get to better the world if those gifts are not at the table. And so, um, you know, I, I always tell, I always tell other black indigenous and racialized women and femmes, like they need you. This is not about white people helping you or giving you a handout or making you, uh, hiring you for this, for this position because they need a black indigenous or racialized person. Like this is about the fact that we are owed this. We are owed reparations. We are owed being in these spaces. We were excluded intentionally. And so, you know, taking your rightful space and place and seat is your birthright. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of finding the empowerment in being able to be genuine in who you are and how you express yourself and things like that are such powerful um, rewards that can come from placing those boundaries that a lot of people don't recognize at the time. Um, But even like you said, like how you wear your braids and things like that. I remember when I was, I think in high school, I had interviewed for a job as a server somewhere. And he said, um, he had offered me the job. We were going through dress code and he said, you know, all the servers come in with their hair straightened and down every shift. And I was like, okay, well, as you know, a woman of color, that doesn't really work for my hair because it would be dead by the second shift. Like, I'm like, I can't straighten it every single shift. And he's like, well, that's, that's policy. And I was like, well, then you have to find someone to take my place. And so since then I found that I really struggled with, um, you know, how I presented myself in the workplace and things like that. And kind of that physical code switching and changing my appearance. And so even the braids that I have now, they're half rainbow, half black. And when I first saw it, I fell in love with it. I've had the picture saved in my phone for probably, I think four years. Um, and then I was on mat leave and I was like, well, I'm on mat leave. Like I can do it, whatever. I got a job offer to, you know, which ended my mat leave short. Um, and the first thing I was like, can I interview with my hair like this? Like, do I have to whatever? And my, I was staying at my sister's at the time and she's like, just, just do it. Like whatever, because I, they only gave me a day heads up. So I was like, okay. Um, and I was so nervous about it. And I found that now it's something that is some, it's really empowering to me to be able to be like, you know, I can represent myself how I want to but also do the work that I want to you don't have to water yourself down to fit into certain standards um everywhere because you know that one company that I wanted to be a server at um unfortunately is more common than a lot of people realize but is not the standard everywhere Mm -hmm. and and that's why I think you know two things are important we need to do our healing work but also systems need to change because the story that you shared earlier around, you know, you not getting a job because of your hair, like that's, that's something that folks need to understand. Like that's, this is the socioeconomic impacts of mm-hmm. you know, supremacy. And so I understand again, like why, you know, I tell folks empower yourself, but I don't expect everybody to do what I do. I know I take a big risk and, you mm-hmm. know, I even you took a risk in that interview, right? And we don't know exactly what's gonna happen because we still live in a racist society. But I think the more that we can begin to unravel ourselves from that, um, I know when I used to straighten my hair, Patra, oh my gosh, I straightened my hair for years to the point where 
I wouldn't like go swimming. I wasn't able to like go out on certain days. It was raining. Like I couldn't work out. It was like, this is crazy. So white supremacy also creates mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, um, you know, um, disease in the body, because now you're not even able to do the things that you want to do in life. Mm -hmm. So there's also that aspect, right? Like how have we, how have we internalized that so much that maybe we're, 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 we're making that the standard and we're not enjoying our lives Mm -hmm. or we're allowing it to prevent us. Right. So, um, systems need to change and, you know, we need to do our own healing work. Absolutely. We do. What do you find um, through your healing and through kind of educating others in this? What do you find has been some of the biggest positive benefits to you personally? Mm, Yeah. Well, I mean, I first will say that it is difficult work. It can be very Mm -hmm. exhausting. I've definitely burnt out because of it. And I've had to learn how to prioritize my own mental, emotional well-being. Um, But I think the biggest benefits, I think for me, is that I feel like I've reclaimed a lot of the things that I lost, a lot Mm -hmm. of the things that I like put to the side and ignored, or the ways in which I allowed myself to be in spaces where... um, where I knew it was harmful, but I like ignored that part of myself in order to just like fit in or seem like the nice, you know, the good black friend that everybody with. Now that I don't do that anymore, I've like attracted and aligned with people who hold similar values and who are compassionate and caring and passionate people about equity. And so now all of these relationships have built where, um, we can, we're doing this work together in many ways, right, in our own communities. And so building new community. And what I've seen for other people, the most amazing thing that always gives me joy, because I every time I do an anti-racism workshop or training for organizations, I always say that like this work is like, I'm, I'm really speaking to the Black you know, indigenous and racialized women, femmes, trans, non-binary folks in the room, I'm like, this work is for you. Even though I'm mostly educating white folks on how to dismantle and, and, you know, how to take responsibility and accountability, this work is for you so that you can be more safer, so that you can move in spaces where you don't have to code switch, so that you can, you know, start to build that sense of self-love and, um, you know, have equity in the spaces that you're in. So seeing folks message me or reach out to me and say like, Salam, thank you so much for doing that in my workspace. I wanted someone to say this, but I've never felt safe enough to say this. And you Mm -hmm. saying this broke the ice, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think those are the greatest um, gifts. Yeah, that's a beautiful honor to have, um, to be able to, like I was saying in terms of like being a mother, like to be able to be that safe space and kind of expand it, you know, not just to your son, but to these racialized women everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what about your story do you think is most important for people to hear? Mm. I think the most important part about my story, and I know I didn't talk about it a lot, you know, today is that Um, I think what happens, I know for myself, I felt a lot of shame around my story. And Mm so I, my experiences of, you know, sexual assault and being molested and having a child at a a young age and being a single mom and having, not having access. And so therefore not going to university and all of these things that happened to me in life and feeling like I wasn't good enough or I was unworthy. 
um, once I started to like become aware and started to like look at those parts of myself, love those parts of myself, connect to my, you know, inner child, like do that healing work. I started to recognize that my story was actually, you know, my power. It was part of my power that I could turn my wounds into wisdom. Mm -hmm. And it actually, you know, the reason why I'm able to do the work that I, I do today is because of the things that have happened to me and the awareness that I have, the care and the compassion and the empathy. And so, um, so I, I always say to folks like, you know, whatever it is that's hiding and that you feel shame around in a safe space, the more that you can bring that into the light and like honor it, the more you will be free. And for me, my freedom comes from being completely honest and transparent about where I've been and, and, um, unapologetically myself. Mm-hmm. That is, I think I have that almost in direct quotes on my website, like your story is your superpower. Um, Because that's the whole reason I started even this podcast, like the first season is talking about my experience with racism and abuse and trauma. And then, you know, it also talks about like the lighter things um, and family and things like that. And the journey of, you know, my personal journey of discovering and honoring the black woman in me essentially. Um, and so I think that if I could wear that on a t-shirt everywhere and have people mm-hmm. ask about it and then have those conversations with every single person that it comes across, um, I think it would be magical because it's so true and everyone's stories are so unique to you and that shame, um, and guilt, like you said, it's a human reaction. It's going to be there. Um, but that doesn't mean that you have to avoid it. Um, I think this, the best things in life come from when you are able to persevere through that, or you recognize, you know, why that emotion is there and how you can either work with it or work past it. Um, but you can't really work around it. Mm -hmm. You gotta go through Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, is there anything currently that you're working on or would like to raise awareness for? Well, I am, I just launched my anti-racism course for 2022. So that, um, cohort we're working through, um, together coaching sessions. So the next anti-racism course won't be available to 2023, but folks can go to uh, the website salamdevs.com and then join the wait list and get more information about the anti-racism course. Um, I'm also working on resting, Patra. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm working on taking time off. I love that answer. July, yeah, July and August. And that's really going to be my focus on like writing poetry, just like Beautiful. honestly allowing myself to calm my nervous system. So that is one of my most favorite exciting things that are coming up soon that is probably my favorite answer to that question because everyone continues listing all the work they're doing and recognizing that that self piece is the most important it just gives me all the feels I love it um so I will link your website below is there anywhere else um that listeners can find or support you yeah they can also go to my instagram um which is my name salam Debs and um, I'm always sharing content information there too. So um, that would be the, I think the next place uh, to join me. Perfect. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me today, for sharing 
your story, your wisdom, um, your beautiful tree analogy, everything with me. I so appreciate it. You're so welcome, Patrick. Thank you for this um, conversation. I love your podcast and so grateful to be here. Thank you. Thank you.